episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL. Answers is also brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Whether you want to place a trade on Twitter or get market news from your smart speaker, TD Ameritrade has everything you need to invest on your favorite platforms and devices. See what's new at tdameritrade.com innovation. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Greetings, Allison. In today's episode, with the help of Motley Fool analyst Seth Jason, we're going to talk about comeback kids and learn how a few beaten down stocks have turned it around. We'll also get advice for investing successfully when a stock takes a hit. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Allison, I recently had a bit of a flashback. So, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, an article by Jason Zweig. And he told the story of a guy named Barry Popick, who on September 1st received a check for $35.98. And that's all that's left of the $25,000 he invested in Lehman Brothers' preferred stock in February of 2008. So Mr. Popick had already owned Lehman Brothers' common stock at that time. He inherited it. It, sound, it was implied that he inherited it from his parents, who had it from his grandparents. Wow. Um, so it was already his family. Uh, he was familiar with the company. Plus, at that point, the company had just reported record revenues, so he was pretty comfortable with it. And the reason it brought back memories is because this preferred stock at the time yielded almost 8%. And my mom called me and said, hey, Lehman Lehman Brothers has this new preferred stock, 8%, should I get it? And I said, I don't really know enough about the company. I'm not a big fan of preferred stock, so I wouldn't do it. Fortunately, she took my advice. Oh, good. Because... As we all know, because we're now celebrating the 10-year anniversary of it, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt on September 15th of 2008. And the thing about that story is that I'm sure Mr. Popick was thinking what my mom was telling me, and that was, Lehman Brothers is this huge company. It has been around since 1850. Mm. It was one of the oldest companies that was still publicly traded. What possibly could go wrong? But of course... It did go wrong. And it's not the only one. Bear Stearns, of course, uh, Washington Mutual, and the market itself went down more than 50%. Um, So I was thinking back to those days and thinking one of the things I I kept thinking was, are we ever going to get back to normal? Because so many big companies were down significantly. The market was down. It was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Well, here we are 10 years later. So I think, well, let's look back. Did things get back to normal? So what is normal? One thing that is normal that we always talk about is the stock market historically, the U.S. stock market at least, has returned 10% a year. What has the S&P 500 returned over the last decade since the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers? 11% 11 a year. So it's even done even better. One thing that is also normal is that small stocks over the long term outperform large stocks. Did that happen over the past decade? Yes. Check. Check. They returned about 11.7%. And the other thing that's normal is that over the long term, stocks beat cash and bonds, and that has definitely happened. Cash basically has returned nothing over the last decade. Just recently have you now been able to earn a little bit on your cash. Bond market returned a little over 3%. So that is actually better than a lot of people thought, because with interest rates going up, a lot of people thought there'd be just horrible returns for bonds. So they returned 3%. Not great, but better than cash, and it's a pretty safe investment. All that said, there are some things that 
either were abnormal or at least of note. So the day after Lehman Brothers uh, declared bankruptcy, there was a big money market fund that was known as called, it basically lost 3%. Money market funds traditionally traded as a dollar a share, and people were treating them as cash. But because this fund owned so much Lehman Brothers debt, it actually dropped in value, which was something that had never happened before. And since then, there have been new rules put in place to prevent that happening. But that is something that has changed. Also, not all other types of assets have done as well. For example, commodities have actually lost money over the last decade. That is also something that is extremely rare in history. And when it started happening back in like the first few years after the Great Recession, Commodities recovered okay, but then started significantly underperforming U.S. stocks. And there were articles coming out like, they've underperformed stocks now for three or four years, five years, six years. That's never happened. This is going to turn around at some point. But it still hasn't. So it's another example of where the future turns out a little bit differently than history. And then finally, you look at U.S. or international stocks. International stocks have done okay, but not as well. So they've returned on average a little over 4% a year. So over the last decade, U.S. stocks have outperformed international stocks by 7% a year. That is also a pretty extraordinary run in terms of the difference between the two. Still noteworthy, but not as unusual as that over the last 10 years, growth has outperformed value by about 3% a year. That happens all the time, but those switch places. So anyone looking to weight their portfolio one way or another based on what's happened, I would say you might want to tilt your portfolio a little more towards value, because history shows that after a decade of value of growth outpacing value, generally speaking, the next decade is different. So for me, like that, the bottom line for all of this is for those who were really panicked in the throes of the Great Recession and managed to hold on to a diversified portfolio, history has shown that it's the right thing to do. But there were things that happened that people didn't expect. People didn't expect a company that was formed in 1850 to go out of business. People did not expect commodities to lose money over the next decade. And people didn't expect uh, necessarily that international stocks would be trailing U.S. stocks so much. Uh, so basically what you're telling me is that uh some some things remain the same, and some things will be different. Exactly. So, so you have to own all the things. Profound so that thoughts. No matter, profound thoughts with Robert. So Pope no now. matter what happens, your financial plan will be okay. No, but seriously, is is the advice just be diversified? It is. It is to be, and, and to account for the fact that really, worth some things you expect to happen won't happen. That's the resident awfulizer I'd there love to have in this there studio. Yeah. But it could be good. It could be something that you expect to be not so great, turn out very well. But you just don't know what it's going to be. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Molecule replaces 50 years of antiquated technology, and the HEPA filter technology that's been used to clean your air was developed in the 1940s, and there hasn't been any major innovation since. But now, Molecule's Photo, okay, here it's called photoelectrochemical oxidation technology. Science goes beyond the HEPA filter system to both capture and eliminate allergens, molds, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. 
That includes pollutants 1,000 times smaller than what a HEPA filter can catch. We got to try one here at The Motley Fool, and one allergy sufferer loved it so much, he immediately bought two to keep in his house the very next day after after trying Molecule for one night. And it also looks really cool, which matters at our house. When your husband's a former architect, design matters. So for $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and enter the promo code FOOL. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, promo code FOOL. So the craziest thing happened this last week. I go to check my scorecard, and Lululemon was beating the market. Was it this week or last week? Well, in their time, it's just roughly in the recent past. In the recent past, it was up pretty big. Which made me think, wait, what? Because I bought that stock a long time ago and forgot about it, and it did nothing. So I was pleasantly surprised to see what happened. And then I thought, you know what? What about some of these other comeback stories? Let's have Seth Jason, Motley Fool analyst extraordinaire, come in and tell us about comeback stocks. Stocks that took a beating, how they came back, what happened, and also, really, should you invest in stocks when they take a little bit of a hit? All that and more yes. right now with Seth Jason. So go, Seth. So yes. Yeah, so in the you, studio today we yeah. have Seth Jason. Um, Seth, you've been on the show before, but why don't you just uh, remind our listeners a little bit of how you came to the Motley Fool, um, how long you've oh, been wow. here, that kind of thing. About a billion years now. What is it fifteen? It's fourteen years, I think. Yeah, it's 14 and, years. Uh, yeah I don't was, we have uh, like the same full anniversary or something? What's your full anniversary? Uh, no, you were here longer than I was, but I came in. Uh, but the same date. I came in. We were just starting to recover from being uh, almost squashed flat by the whole uh, dot com thing. Mm. I think I was two thousand four or something like that. So uh, yeah, and so we were just getting out, just getting out of. of not being a zombie anymore, and a new business model of a new business model subscription of, yeah, as opposed to ad actually based. charging yeah. for some of our advice. And uh, I started out just as a writer and analyzing the stocks, uh, an analyst, and then moved into uh, picking some of the stocks at hidden gems. And now I'm doing the small cap stock picking at Market Pass, which is kind of a conglomerate of uh, extra pieces tacked onto Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. And so I know the stories of some of these. Uh, Stocks like Lululemon, which was a hidden gems pick for me, and uh, part of the reason you didn't see a return—you don't remember a return on Lululemon—is you owned it when it was super awesome. Yes. Before Yoga Pants Gate. Yes. Yeah. So let's start. Let's start. So we're going to talk about a few specific stocks and their comeback stories, and then um, we'll talk a little bit more generally about stocks and whether you should invest in them when they take a hit. So let's let's start off by talking about Lulu. One that's. Very close to my heart. Um, so yes, I bought it before when everyone was like, "This is the best company ever. It's amazing." And then a few things happened. Yeah, it was super expensive looking. I thought it was pretty silly, but uh, the the price. But even at the time, this the num- the amount of money they were making per square foot of store was just incredible. And then they had some yoga pants go see through or the reports that uh, that Thyrub was was abrading them and they'd become see through very quickly and um, and the CEO said the some CEO crazy things too the CEO pretty much said I, I think what he actually said was more along the lines of you know some women's body types don't work with our clothing which which was i think not unfairly uh, interpreted as you're too fat to wear our clothes <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is a problem when most of your business is to women and um, and getting fit, and they're getting fit, and so um, 
he had to leave as a result of this, and they had to do a lot of cleanup. And I'm trying to look at my notes here. Uh, in early 2014 or late 2013, the stock was somewhere around 75 bucks, Ooh. and it went down uh, uh, in late 2014. It was near 35, so it got cut about in half as a result of Yoga Pantsgate as well as the CFO was leaving at that time. And this is about the time I took it on at Hidden Gems, even though I had been a skeptic on the company. I, I like to every once in a while buy a stock that I think is ridiculous, uh, just to kind of remember that I don't know everything. And um, well, You bought it as a lesson? Uh, Lululemon <laughs> was one I started looking at, wondering, well, now, now what's it look like? Because this thing has is, is done a lot better than I thought for so many years. And it looked to me like a brand that was still very strong, that had issues that could be overcome. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that uh, was the case. But it took a couple of years for the comeback to really take hold. The stock sort of spent a couple of years flirting, uh, kind of getting back up to 75. But they were making progress with uh, new, with first of all apologizing, getting the product better, and then coming out with new product. And then they really hit their stride in 2017 and started. Uh, uh, getting the sales growth going again. And they also, at that point, very importantly, started to uh, do a much better job with online sales and were very targeted uh, so that people who are other companies that are doing business online wouldn't be pulling away from them quite so much. And they have been on a tear since uh, early 2017. The stock is now at about 150 bucks. And interestingly, this latest quarter, which was uh, a record quarter stock is an all-time high right now or close to it, was done without a CEO really running things because the replacement CEO they had uh, was ushered out not so long ago, and we're not exactly sure why, but it seems to be one of those uh, human resources kinds of issues. So this is a company that could be run by no one. And yeah. still be successful. And they just brought in a new CEO, and I'm kind of going, why Why mess with success? It seems like all of the, <laughs> the top people running, the, the, the people reporting to the CEO could just do fine as a committee, which is presumably what they've been doing. And so that's a pretty interesting lesson about a company with a strong brand that came back. They don't all go that way, of course. All right, well, let's move on and talk about another company that has been in the headlines a lot, Chipotle. This is an example of one that has um, sort of come back almost, but not quite so much. Like Everyone thought that they were just going to... Well, a lot of people that I talked to, I remember Tom Gardner, he went to some restaurant convention, and everyone was like, oh yeah, Chipotle's going to come back. They're great. They're going to come back. And it just, oh, it's just taken so long. Well, and this was a much more complex situation. So Chipotle at 750 bucks a share or so back in 2015 was a company that was not only very richly priced based on its current operations, but everybody had this idea that, oh, Chipotle can open whatever kind of restaurant they want, because it's really, they're really a platform for great restaurants. Pizza, Thai, or was it Vietnamese? Shop House, yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was kind of BS. Um, uh, And I owned the stock at that point, and I thought that was really overblown. But then they started giving people diarrhea, right? They had a whole bunch of food safety problems. And it became evident that they, uh, despite bragging about how great their food safety uh, culture was, it really wasn't so great. It was nowhere close to best in class. Best in class would be something like McDonald's. Now, this is ironic. McDonald's had grown Chipotle, right? They owned Chipotle for a long time. And they taught Chipotle how to do a lot of what enabled it to become successful. But somehow Chipotle had not absorbed the the lessons on food safety. Mm -hmm. 
And so, uh, I mean, Chipotle dropped down into the, what, the 500-ish range until, you know, and sat there for a couple of years until 17 and then started making people sick again, right? Ugh, and then yeah. it dropped down. It was like 270 bucks a share not so long ago, and it's back up to 500. So the comeback is sort of there. But by now we know that, one, it costs more money to do things more safely. Mm-hmm. So Chipotle's margins aren't as good. And the other is I don't think anyone believes anymore that they can just open whatever kind of restaurant they they want. They're not a restaurant platform. And quite frankly, I still worry about the valuation now. I still own a lot of shares, but it seems expensive to me. Uh, but now they've got, you know, an ex-Taco Beller running things and people expect a little bit more, uh, a little less pompous food culture and a little yeah. bit more of, hey, let's give people what they want. Uh, and as someone who works with reporters, because my job is PR, uh, I wonder if they if they hadn't have had so much of that pompous food culture, as you called it, would reporters have latched onto the story so much, and would it have been as damning as it was to the company? Because it was a story that reporters love to report on. Chipotle, the place that's supposed to be amazing. Yeah. Oh, guess what? They're not. They're just. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, they brought some of that on themselves. And some of the early reporting, even before they started making people sick, you know, the New York Times showed you know just how many calories were in a Chipotle meal, and it's it's just enormous. And Chipotle's own marketing was touting the size of its burritos. And, and so they had these messages that were kind of at cross purposes because by telling people, oh, we're getting rid of GMOs and everything's so natural that our, you're, you're kind of you're, you're strongly hinting that it, this is healthier than the average food. But and it really, they were getting so much fat and salt and calories. I mean, if you ate one of these things, it was almost a full day's worth of, of calories mm. for a regular person. The only person who kind of person who could eat that. And is you. It would be, yeah, me running like, you know, running 10, 15 miles <laughs> For a day. those who don't know, <laughs> Jason is an avid runner. So, you know, you had, I mean, because, you know, let's just, you put in an extra 500 calories, that's four miles of running or so you need oh, to do to get rid of that. It is. You have to run so I know because when I run, I have to put the extra calories in to avoid wasting away. I don't um, have that problem. Yeah, what are you like six three and what one fifty? How much? I weighed myself yesterday uh, in the evening. um, Was one sixty two, which is up about eight pounds from a few weeks ago, and I just wasn't hungry, but I was still running. (laughs) (laughs) All right, should we move on to talk about a company that I don't know anything about? Let's yeah. Okay, and this is Drew. Well, it Industries? was Drew Industries okay, now, L- now it's LCI, LCI. Industries okay. now. Yeah, and they make um, components, uh, a lot of higher-end components uh, for RVs. And, and years ago, it was also a lot of mobile home stuff. It was window panes and things. But now, think of fancier stuff like uh, self-leveling systems and electronic systems that are incorporated inside travel trailers and even motorized RVs. And this is a company that I think is one of the kind of comebacks that's a little easier for uh, investors to spot, especially uh, when I tell the story of this one. This is a cyclical company, right, because it's in the RV business, and RV sales tend to be cyclical. You sell a bunch, and then people stop buying so many, and then they go down. Well, in the Great Recession, RV sales really cratered, right? People were not going to spend money on big-ticket items like that. This stock, I will just point out, at that point was 6 bucks a share. It's recently about 100 and, you know, six months ago it was about 120 what happened was uh, after the recovery, we have had the longest RV market recovery that I think I've ever seen in history. The absolute level of RV sales, I think, is still below the high water mark, which was kind of in the 70s uh, at some point. But the RV sales have just been on an incredible roll. Really? And, yeah. And, and Drew, or formerly Drew, LCI, 
sells componentry to all these manufacturers. So think of you know Thor, which does Airstream, all the Buffett companies that sell RVs, Winnebago. A lot of them are using lots and lots of uh, LCI components. And LCI is not only very good about being profitable uh, while making this stuff, it's very good about uh, using its cash that it generates to acquire related companies and fold them in and make them uh, and then improve margins and improve the sales. And so this is a kind of a company that is should be on everybody's sort of recession wish list. It's mm. a company that's going to get pounded when we get a recession. But it's such a good company with such a long history. As long as the balance sheet stays good, which it is, it's the kind of thing you watch and you wait until everybody hates it and you buy it because it has a much higher chance of having a really great comeback than a, comp- than a company that, say, like a, a Chipotle that – relies on a brand and just may never get that back. I remember the storyline around RV sales was uh, all the baby boomers are going to retire and they're going to run they're all going to buy an RV and they're going to go around mm-hmm. America and it's going to be great for the mm-hmm. industry. But then that didn't happen and somehow then I feel like the storyline became oh RVs aren't popular anymore because they're gas guzzlers and who needs them. And so I the I guess I'm trying to understand a little bit more the when you yeah. talk about it being cyclical, because it felt like it was more of a big trend, and it could be hard to say, like, oh, well, but RVs, they're going to come back. Maybe yeah. millennials are going to love camping, and they're going to want them. Well, that, like that's that. turned out to be true, actually. There's a lot of the growth in the market over the past five years has been to younger buyers. The mm-hmm. age has been has been coming down, and people do like to, to buy these things, drag them, and, and camp. And I put camp in quotation marks, because for <laughs> me, that means sleeping in a tent, not next door to somebody else uh, mm-hmm. at a campground where you're sitting in something that's pretty much just the same as your house. Um, but the, the RV industry has done a very good job of creating uh, some cheaper options um, that still have the amenities that younger buyers want. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, profit levels on those aren't always as good, uh, but they're, they're good enough and they sell in high enough volumes to really have helped not only the RV uh, makers, but the component suppliers like LCI. All right, let's move on and talk about TripAdvisor. This stock has been a Mollyful recommendation in some services. I don't know if it was in yours for yeah, a I had while. It, I was early at Hidden Gems. It was a it was a spinoff, and mm-hmm. so our one of our special uh, services that did that kind of stuff recommended it. And then I looked at it for Hidden Gems, and we had it from kind of the mid twenties, I think. And then it went all the way up into the low one hundred tens, and then bad things started to happen. What bad things happened? Because I, as as a traveler, I love TripAdvisor. Yeah. I never bought the stock. Yeah, and then I never paid attention to it again. Yeah. So what bad things happened? Well, to it, was ba- it was mostly ad-based sales. And sorry for our listeners, TripAdvisor offers ad- it was hotel reviews was primarily how it started, and okay. that was and so selling hotel ads next to those reviews was really the the business, and it did a very good job of that. Made a lot of free cash flow and was trading, you know, in the hundred ten dollar range in uh, two thousand fourteen, and that that was quite a ways up from when it when it was spun out of uh, Expedia. After that, they, they had to kind of change the business because there were there were industry changes. There was something called meta search where you needed to do a search across you know different platforms to find the best prices and uh, and start to format the results differently. And then you needed to reduce the friction to get to get uh, 
buyers to the hotels more quickly. It started to be a thing of where if it takes people four clicks to to book their hotel, they're not going to do it. So you needed to switch things around. So it was one or two clicks. And this reduced the opportunities for ad revenue for TripAdvisor. Some of this was self-inflicted and I think was the right move. They were looking ahead, seeing where the market was going, and they were taking short-term hits um, in, in hopes of building, keeping building the brand and looking out for the long term. And then uh, they started to get uh, a little bit more competition, both in reviews, if you think of Yelp, or you think of just you know your Android phone in your pocket. Sometimes it's just easier to look at those Google reviews. Google, yeah. Uh, even though I probably trust the TripAdvisor reviews a little bit more, at least on hotels, but now there's so many reviews on other platforms that a review is almost a review as a review. And so um, they, they've lost an edge there. And at the same time, then, you know, you had Trivago guy. And I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how many of you are sick of seeing Trivago guy, <clears throat> but I watch Hulu a lot when I'm on the treadmill. And for a while, that's all I saw was Trivago guy. He was haunting your dreams. <laughs> and Trivago guy really bugged me. And it especially bugged me because as a TripAdvisor holder and understanding the business, someone had recommended it. You know, they were basically saying, like, we look at all these things and find you the best deal. Well, that's what every single site does. Like, they weren't offering anything different. And Trivago was what I I think of an example of as sort of irrational competition. They mm. were burning money, you know, trying to get market share and, you know, to run these ads and run ads on the Internet in order to get traffic. Well, that still hurts, you know, a better player. Uh, and I say TripAdvisor was a better player. And so, uh, you know, not so long ago, TripAdvisor was back down to the 28 buck range. And now it's still only about in the $50 range. Now they've expanded their offering. They do things like tours. They've, uh, you can book tours uh, when you're in, in the market. And a lot of that is very smart. But I don't know if they'll ever get back to where they were because the business, although it's bigger in terms of traffic and the the breadth of what they offer, it's not as profitable as when they were sort of the number one mm-hmm. game in town just selling ads. Mm-hmm. So come back in, in the process, TBD. Yeah, I mean, it's a comeback from 28. Uh, you know, it's a double over a year or so. But uh, from here, it's tough to tell. I actually sold my shares a while ago uh, because I just had been wondering about the the erosion of the former competitive advantage in terms of, of reviews. Yeah. So not all of these stocks took a hit for the same reason. Um, some were an idiot thing that CEOs said and did, compounded by see-through pants. Some yeah. were... <laughs> bathroom-related issues. Some were trend, larger trends. So yeah. let's talk a bit more generally about an, analyzing a company when it's taken a stock yeah. hit and whether the stock has taken a hit and whether you see that as an opportunity or not. So um, one example that we talked about here was the when the brand takes a hit. Yeah. Like Lulu and Chipotle, those were kind of, do you, would you say those were like brand, the brand I think those are mostly brand hits, yeah. And so that's the that's the toughest thing to figure out, especially at the moment, because we look back now at, with hindsight and we try to draw lessons and mm-hmm. the lessons we draw are invariably wrong because mm-hmm. we can't remember what it was like when we didn't know the outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, brand hits, I think, are uh, they're among the toughest. And uh, I, I think that in general, if a company has a bit unique maybe like a Lululemon or a Chipotle, you're probably doing well to hold or to even initiate a position when everybody hates it uh, with the full knowledge that you may not get it right. And uh, in terms of the investor uh, action that I think works best to take advantage of these situations, it's in general sort of 
buying the the good businesses either you know before they've crashed or when you when you've seen them crash and you still think they're decent and then just kind of holding on to them because uh, in some of these we've got some companies that have returned four or five times or something and then some others I've I've picked them you know they're down 80 percent and they're never coming back well you know if you've taken a reasonable position in each of them you've got a, a four or five bagger next to a, a, an 80 percent loss you're doing pretty well Mm-hmm. And so the best way to make sure that you can get returns that are based on some of that is to sort of just hold hold on to everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When one of the more f- famous moments here at the Motley Fool when it comes to a downturn is, of course, um, Quickster, the Quickster deba- debacle mm-hmm. of um, the CEO announced. I don't even remember don't exactly what Quickster on was. This one. I have no, a worst I wanna, story about this. Well, I want to know what side of history you're on with Quickster because if I remember right, the Motley Fool's divided. Some analysts were like, "No, the strategy is dumb. The company's done. It's got the leaders." Oh, I thought it was stupid, but I figured they'd change it. Here, here's what happened to me. I put it on my list of stuff to buy because I finally net. Netflix is cheap enough for me. It looks reasonable enough for me to buy. And then I just like forgot to do it that week. <laughs> and then I looked at it Dude, later. Dude, that happens to all of us. And I went, ah, oh, you know, it's up like, it was up quick. And I don't know if this was directly after Quickster or one of the other yeah. drops, but it was one of those drops. And then it jumped back pretty quickly. And I went, nah. And then the next time I checked, maybe somebody was recommending it and I was locked out. And I just kind of never did it, oh, you know? And yeah. there was a zillion times when I should have said, okay, it looks expensive, but I'll just buy some anyway. And I just never did and, right. until now. And so another lesson I have is that if you think you, you see a world-beating company like that, and I do this more now than probably I ever have, forget the price, take a take that small position. Don't go plowing a bunch in. But I've done that on, on several companies uh, lately that I think, you know, might be big leaders in their fields. And, uh, and just hang on to them because, uh, boy, you know, missing like a 40 bagger on Netflix because you just like forgot to look at your to-do list. It was li- <laughs> it was literally on my to-do list and I just didn't do my to-do list. Yeah. 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 I have about a list of about 20 of those, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't feel bad. Before we go, what's your bottom line advice here when looking at stocks that have taken a hit? If you hold that stock and you have a lot of confidence in the team, I think you just you just keep hanging on to it and try not to double down because if you hold the stock and you have confidence in the team, you're probably overconfident. Uh, if you're uh, an outsider watching what you think is a company that was doing a pretty good job and it looks like they should have a handle on it, then I think you should go ahead and take a position at some point and, and just acknowledge the fact that you might be wrong and it might continue to go south. Uh, and then another thing, this is, it goes back to Mr. Steve Broido and, and maybe his father's advice, which is when you see that first piece of bad news, it, you can wait a while because that's not always the last piece of bad news. You don't have to get in on these, on these drops right away. Uh, there's often something to be gained by waiting a while and reading the conference calls and seeing how they're addressing the underlying problems. Seth, thank you for joining us. Would you like to stick around and talk about some comebacks of another nature? <laughs> Oh, boy, you have no now, choice. No, yes. I'm intrigued. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I do. You're stuck with us. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You're always on the cutting edge of technology, and TD Ameritrade prides itself on being ahead of that curve too. Their latest innovations put their resources and services on the popular platforms you carry and use every day. Now, all you have to do is enable the TD Ameritrade skill for Amazon Alexa or message them on Facebook to stay on top of the markets. Learn more about their commitment to innovation at tdameritrade.com/innovation. 
talked about some company comebacks. Let's talk about some verbal comebacks. Witty retorts, historic ones. We're going to see how smart you are on identifying some trivia around some historic comebacks. I only ever have good retorts like an hour later. You go, oh, that's what right? I should have said. That's a zinger. All right. Well, we'll see. You don't, you don't actually have to come up with the retort. You oh, just okay. got to uh, judge, them? judge them and figure out. Well, we'll see. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a game. Okay. You'll figure it out. Okay. Let's start with an easy one. As printed in the New York Times uh, many, many years ago, an unnamed woman said to this prime minister, if I were your wife, I'd poison your tea. To which he retorted, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. Wow. All right. Does everyone have an answer in mind? As to who did it? or As to who said, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. This famous prime minister. Wow. I want to say Churchill. It was Churchill. It was Churchill. It definitely was Churchill. All right. According to Quote Investigator, uh, Churchill was quoted as saying this in the New York Times, and it was later recounted in a 1952 book with the woman being identified as Lady Astor, whoever that is. However, the joke has actually been around since 1899 in various forms. So while he may have said it, he was not the first one. Yeah, sounds too good to be true. Right? A lot of these are. Sound too good to be true. All right, next one. Around 350 BC, King Philip II of Macedon Mm. began invading Greece. As he continued his march, he sent a message to Sparta. If once I enter into your territories, I will destroy ye all, never to rise again. Sparta sent a one-word reply. What was it? Oh, I would love to say it was nuts. I was going to say nuts. 300. 300. (laughs) This is Sparta. Wow, what was the reply? Um, I don't so remember this. the guy this. said, if once I enter your territories, I will destroy you all, never to rise again. I should know it, and I don't. The answer is, if. if. So, oh. yes, Sparta. Another fun retort. Uh, when told to lay down their arms by King Xerxes, Leonidas replied, come take them. Yeah. But probably like much more aggressively as opposed to enthusiastically. Did, and he jumped in <laughs> slow motion. He did. So, yeah, that was in the movie. And they're and like, the actually, blood that's historically <laughs> accurate. Yeah. All right. Next question. John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, and John Wilkes, an 18th century member of parliament, did not get along. They were political enemies, and apparently they pranked each other a lot at the Hellfire Club. I don't know. Anyway, it's been recounted in a couple books that Montague once said to Wilkes, Sir, I do not know whether you will die on the gallows or of the pox. To which Wilkes reportedly replied, That depends, my lord, on whether I embrace your lordship's principles or your wife. Wife. (laughs) Gotta be wife. Close. Mistress. Oh. Oh. Wow. Yeah, so there's some dispute that the exchange happened and whether it was actually John Wilkes, but um, there's, it's, was, it was printed in a few books. Um, fun fact. So that's a VD joke right there. There yeah. you go. There you go. Uh, the Earl of Sandwich in, in this story is the one that the sandwich supposedly was The actual sandwich was supposedly Didn't want to get ham juice on his cards, right? Yeah. I, I assume at the Hellfire Club. And the Wilkes in question was known as the ugliest man in England, but he was a Apparently somewhat charming. He said it only took a half hour to talk away his face. Uh, he was a supporter of. <laughs> I've got to use it that It takes one. me so much longer <laughs> than that. <laughs> he was a supporter of America during the War of Independence, and I'm 99% sure he's the guy who Wilkes Street is named after in Old Town. Oh, oh yeah. John Wilkes. So yeah. Based on your research or just yeah. your hunch? Your just 99. Hunch, oh no, I, go- I googled it. Oh, okay. Because oh, okay. if it were yeah some other. 
part of the state, it would be named for John Wilkes. I was just going to say. Right? right? <laughs> All right. The comeback. Here it is. Well, I guess I know enough to... Bro's probably going to get this one. Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you suck-dologizing old man-trap. This was the funniest line delivered during the play Our American Cousin. The subsequent laughter was used to obscure the sound of whose gun going off. Oh, yeah. John Wilkes. Sure. I, I expected you to be faster on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm faster on the drama with that uh-huh. one. Yeah. The answer is John Wilkes Booth. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, a bonus comeback, here we go. During one of Lincoln's debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, Douglas called Lincoln two-faced. Lincoln responded by saying, I leave it to my audience. If I had another face, would I wear this one? I know, that's, a, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen the Drunk History episode on the Lincoln assassination? They have various people playing Lincoln in various Drunk History episodes that oh, involve yeah. him, but one of the first ones was was uh, amazing, and it's the assassination story. Oh, okay. okay. I have to look it up. That, I believe you can watch that on Netflix, on Flickster. On the, on the <laughs> quick Flickster. With a Q, was it? Okay, I don't remember. It was, it was very complicated. <laughs> so that's it. You guys actually did very well on this Thank quiz. You. Nice work. Very well. Um all right. Well, that's the show. Seth, Seth thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me on. Always good to have you here. Uh, did, did I talk long enough to talk away my face? <laughs> <laughs> you have a face for podcasts. I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I maybe talked away my bad haircut, but still work to do. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about here. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear on the show. Well, that's the show. It's edited suckdologizingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.